Welcome, citizens of the globe, to the Frontend Heroes podcast, where we discuss all things villainous and heroic about the front end of software development. My name is Evan Payne, and with me as always is my co-host, Scott Francis. How are you, Scott? I'm pretty good. We're in the midst of a lockdown, so um, it's pretty uh, intense. And full disclosure, the family are running around in another room, which doesn't normally happen when recording the pod. So there may be some interruptions. That's fair. Mine are all still asleep. So uh, lazy, lazy butts that don't have to go to school. <laughs> uh, today's episode is sponsored by NetCentric, an award-winning Adobe Global Alliance partner. Both Scott and I work here as senior front-end software engineers, and we are still so glad to have their support with this show. So today's uh, topic and theme is remote control heroes. And the idea is, especially in the times, these strange and interesting times that we live in, um, we're all having to adapt to remote work. Um, at the company Scott and I work for, we have a sort of flexible work schedule, and a lot of times we will work from home. I've been fully remote for three years, actually, on a remote contract. Um, so we thought it was an appropriate uh, starting point for discussions. Um, so let, let's start with maybe what normal um, non-remote workers have been encountering. Scott, what's been your experience with partially kind of working from home when you need to uh, in, until recently? It's always been a huge plus for, for me, for running my family um, and, and work life. The balance that it gives you is, is really, like I couldn't do without it now. I actually think that one of the one of the questions I would ask in any interview for any job in the future is, would I be able to actually work remote? Because without it, I think that um, for a family in my kind of situation, it would be impossible to to balance everything. Um, I never really have a problem with with working from home. Uh, I sometimes miss the second screen, like a big monitor. I really like going into the office uh, for some social interaction. So I keep things to a minimum, really. But I think that it definitely has its place, and I don't really encounter problems. That's changed over the last week because now not only am I working from home, but I'm working from home um, with my girlfriend and two children in the room next to me which kind of puts a different slant on things. Um, it makes it much more challenging um, because that really is balancing work and life. Yeah, uh, I I really feel the same way uh, as you. I have been, again, working remotely for, for three years. And before I moved to this career, I was technically working remotely because that's what freelance often is. Um, but... Yeah, I I wouldn't go back. Um, I I might be comfortable moving to a company where I had to come in, you know, like once or twice a week, but maybe not even that anymore. Um, it is just such a difference in my quality of life. Um, it's it's been really important, and there have been times in the past where I've uh, turned jobs down because it just wasn't on the table. And yeah, I think one of the interesting side effects I hope to see out of uh, this situation we're in is that companies realize especially tech companies that you don't need 
everyone in the office yeah, with proper discipline and um, you know good routines you can be just as effective uh, or more so when you're working from home office so yeah for for, for me it, it hasn't even been that much of a change recently like yeah the kids are home but in Spain lunchtime they're home anyway um, so we, we kind of have gotten into a good rhythm where they don't bother me too much and at the same time if they do it's not totally unprofessional. Uh, I mean, if there was like a crying baby screaming all the time during your calls, well, that's not professional, but anything else is manageable. And, yeah. Uh, and it, I can, I kind of think at the moment that there's exceptions being made. I mean, for instance, if you're in a meeting with a client, the chances are that the client is also, well, the chat, the client is actually, um, in that home office situation. So, they're definitely going to understand. Um, so more times than not, they'll probably have children themselves and they'll understand, oh, this is just a hazard of the situation. Um, oh, yeah. It's, it's forgivable. I mean, ordinarily, yeah, you wouldn't want that to happen. You, you wouldn't want every video call to be... The, the classic is the BBC interview where two children sure. stumble <laughs> into the room. You don't want that to happen every time. But at the moment... Like occasionally your children might walk in. I think that the going back to the point you made about like perhaps companies will start seeing through this crisis that not everybody needs to be in an office all the time. Um, the one thing that I would hope is that they see that this is an exceptional situation. And if it works, then it's going to work even better in a normal situation. Um, the children are not always going to be here. You're probably, I mean, I'm lucky and unlucky at the same time because my girlfriend is a teacher. She is going to teach some of her classes online, but lots of those have been cancelled. So it kind of frees her her time up a little bit, um, yeah. which makes things easier for me. But in a normal situation, that just wouldn't happen. Um, so companies need to see that this isn't, a normal situation but it can be used to as an experiment to see hey maybe we don't need so much office space maybe we can trust people to still be productive um yeah and i think that's definitely a side effect of this yeah um the last point i would make on this uh, myself is that the um i i see that i feel like there used to be a kind of uh, horror <laughs> involved when you were working from home of your family being noticed in any way, shape or form. And now I'm seeing like even the client has their toddlers in the standups um, uh, sometimes. And I like that that is a potential reminder that, geez, we're all people, we are professionals, but that doesn't mean we don't have families and that that is not the biggest part of our life. Um, I, 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 I like that we're headed in that direction. It makes it feel a little more natural, everything we do. Um, the, the next kind of branching off of here, I, I think we need to touch on briefly as since we're talking about remotes is, um, how you are actually able to stay effective and engaged and focused while you're at a home office situation. Plenty of people talk about this. I don't think we're going to reinvent the wheel here, but what are some of the things that you, uh, do to make sure that you're not kind of going off the rails? Well, first and foremost, I try and keep the same routine as I would if I was going into the office. And that starts with 
like getting up at the same time. It starts with doing a little exercise before I start work. Um, but then keeping the same times as much as I can to work like sections of the day. You know, we all have coffee breaks. We all like, stop for um, 10 minutes around the water cooler, if you like. Those things still need to happen. Uh, a temptation when you're at home is to always be on, I think. And you really need to, to make sure that you stop. Um, because without that, your productivity is not going to be that great. So I always try and keep the same routine. Um, and my water cooler moments now uh, are not with colleagues. Instead, they're with my children and with my partner. But they're still breaks. They're still taking that time away from the, from the desk. But in terms of actual productivity, I think that I try to be focused in the times that I'm actually sitting at the desk. Like, put some headphones on, put some music on, drown out the background noise, and switch on for an hour, hour and a half, and really remain focused. Um, other people could do this differently. Maybe they have targets, like I must finish this before I take a break. But I think that you, you have to have some kind of mechanism. Um, mine just happens to be um, like time segments, if you like. Uh, how, do you, how do you deal with it? Yeah, well, um, I'm not very good at uh, delineating. Um, so for me, the thing that works the best is to have a hard break. So like, unless it's really someone has requested it of me, I am completely done at five and I do not return to the computer or the workspace. You know, sometimes you slip a little, but it's usually just to browse something. Like I am not available for work after that time period. In the mornings, though, I'm not great at exercising. I really need to get better and all of that stuff. But the other trick I have is just cut down on sugars because um, sugars give you that quick boost and then you crash. And that's not ideal. Um, trying to keep water on hand as well uh, lifts your spirits and your mood and keeps you uh, in flow. And like you say, stepping away occasionally does help. If I ever feel stuck on something, I have always have permission uh, to get up and walk uh, off, go out for a walk. Maybe not now, <laughs> recently, but um, <laughs> you know, uh, uh, even a walk get around the living room. Euros <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Um, but 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 yeah, the, the, those kind of things are really important. And like everyone. I think points out you have to have a delineation so I couldn't I've had to at times like go into the bedroom to work while um, the family is out here doing some sort of like lessons or something that I'm not as comfortable with uh, I don't like working from the couch like I like sitting at the dining room table which is my workspace during the day and it puts you into the physical position to be doing work and it becomes like a habit and a pattern um, I'm a big believer in that of forcing yourself into habits and patterns that are healthy. So yeah, other than that, yeah, I mean, I, I really, uh, I wrote an article actually on Dev Two, um, just about staying um, motivated while you're working from home. I mean, those are most of my tips. The the other thing was uh, using music to your advantage as well. Um, I, I think that is a very important thing to put you into certain moods and remind you. Like I have one set of albums that I put on because I know that they made me productive in the past and it kind of reminds me to get back into that mood. Um, the last one that I have, and this is big for those that are maybe a little more social and miss the office, is to 
um, be a bit like a cook, right? Stir your pots. Um, this, I don't know how, it, when you're cooking a big meal, you usually have five or six things on the stove at any one time. And they all just need a little bit of stirring to make sure they don't clump too much together and just are keep doing what they need to do. Um, I think people <clears throat> and the conversations you have are a bit like that as well. I see in the morning when I get to the office, I usually send out little like, hey, how's it going? Did you hear this? Or did you read this article? Or that thing you were working on last week, how did that go? Two, seven, eight, nine more people. <laughs> and then throughout the rest of the morning and day, those conversations keep going. Sometimes they turn into a quick video chat for coffee. Uh, other times, you know, we schedule a meeting for another day, whatever it is. But keeping in the flow of these conversations is really important because it's very easy to be just isolated when, in fact, if the internet goes away, you can't talk to these people anymore. Yeah, I think with you, it's particularly interesting. I see that when you come into the office, like you're obviously productive um, on a daily basis. But I see when you come into the office, because we don't see you in person so much, then a lot of people engage you in face-to-face conversations and yeah. everybody kind of wants like 15 minutes to have a coffee with you. I mean, man, you must drink a lot of coffee when you come to the office. <laughs> <laughs> um, like you have kind of the opposite problem of maybe the rest of us would work from home once in a while and think, Oh, how can I make this as productive as when I'm in the office? You have the opposite. If I go to the, the office, how can I make this as productive as being at home? but there suddenly becomes lots of distractions for you. So oh, yeah. you're kind of the opposite. I, I definitely, I say that every time I come in, I'm like, if I'm going into the office this month, because I only really kind of go in once a month lately, um, I'm not going to get anything done that day. It's just, I mean, in the morning when I get there, uh, I kind of think, okay, I've got a couple hours. But if you're there early, which you often are, then I don't. And that's fine. I, I, like, I kind of just write off that day. Because I think what is... Uh, people sort of understand, but not always, is that those social connections, those um, conversations you get into that are at work, but not purely about work. They're, they're often more about this kind of stuff we talk about in this podcast, honestly, um, larger topics. Those are really important for career development and for growth as a person. Um, so I don't mind that lost day of productivity because I know it's going to pay it back in the future. Yeah, it really is important. Um, Everybody would agree with that, I think. And that leads on to really, like, how do we ensure over the next two or three weeks that that continues while everybody is working away from each other? I mean, I think that NetCentric are organizing, um, like, virtual lunches, virtual um, get-togethers, trying to trying to actually recreate like water cooler moments um, to keep everybody together. Because one thing that I would say about NetCentric is there is a good kind of atmosphere. There is a good team atmosphere. Um, and the trick now is how do we actually keep that going for the next two or three weeks while everybody is locked away? Um, and then if everybody thinks that this is something that we could roll out in the future and maybe like cut down on office space, how do we keep that going? Um on a digital platform because for yeah. sure we still need that. Yeah. Well, I, I think it's important. Um, I think like you say, it's a uh, situation's a little bit flipped. 
Um, in this case, I think that the responsibility for that is on the person working remotely to reach out and engage and start those conversations. Um, I have someone that uh, I've worked with that has been in a, a remote office where there's no, like, they're not home office, but the office is quite small. And they felt like they are not fitting into the culture because most of their day is on this client that is in this other place. And, and, I, and I told them, you have to do the reaching out. You have to use the Slack bot that gives you a random coffee time with a random person from the office every so often, or go into a location channel and just hear what the word is, or, or you know, take on a junior to mentor. Any of these things are valid, but you have to be the one doing it. You can't expect to be just brought in by the alpha in the group, right? Um, that social dynamics like that uh, group think dynamics don't always work when you're just a name in the Slack channel, right? It's it's really interesting topics. I'm glad that we are encountering this and talking about it more because of the freedoms that it grants. You're able to be closer to your family and all this stuff. I think it's really healthy for us as a society. So um, I look forward to that. I, I do want to kind of cut us short because, again, um, as with last time, we're not really talking about front end, and that's okay, but I want to bring it into the front end as well and maybe just change tax a little bit. Um, we were thinking about remote control heroes. And, uh, the first thing that came to my mind besides remote work was, um, what kind of things do we control remotely? Um, and maybe the, the typical thing that we, we have to do as front enders is actually do, uh, testing on devices that we don't own. So the situation would come up where we, um, a, a client is, uh, all of their, their, let's say you're building an intranet, uh, an internal network uh, website for a client, and you know that 100% of their employees are using Windows um, 7, let's say. Oh, heaven forbid. Maybe we'll, we'll, we'll say Windows 10 and Internet Explorer 11. And that is all they're allowed to use because of the corporation. But us as, you know, modern hipster developers, we only have MacBooks and um, Chrome, right? Um, <clears throat> occasionally Firefox or, or something uh, like that as well. I mean, obviously, I think we know, but maybe for the audience, like what, what kind of tools have you been using to uh, help you make sure that what you're developing looks good in not just Chrome, but also in these other devices? Well, in such a case, I would just use virtual machine um, and get an instance of um, the Windows machine, run IE11 on that, and probably Chrome on there as well, just to see how that looks. Um, I think in general that works quite well. Um, there is a problem that I've noticed with Macs at the moment where everybody who runs virtual machine will suddenly just say, it's just crashed my machine. Everything will just switch off and then you have to wait for everything to boot back up. Um, I don't know why it does that. It didn't used to do it, but now on everybody's had new Macs and now virtual machine just from time to time completely shuts down your Mac. Yeah, it's, um, it's something It's something with uh, 10.15, uh, the Mac OS. Um, it started for me when I installed the beta and they never got it to they never fixed it and yeah it just your computer your computer goes and just turns off yeah uh, it's like, the worst 
Yeah, I, I find it frustrating enough when the virtual machine just decides, right, we're going to shut down now. Like, enough of this. We're just going to turn off. That's yeah. frustrating enough. When it actually turns your Mac off as well, then that's just, just drives you crazy. But yeah. um, I, I would also try and do some testing on uh, a Windows machine. Now, I do actually have a Windows machine in in the house from like when from long ago when yeah. I didn't use Macs. Um, in, in in fairness, I still do as well. Yeah, everyone's got one. Like they're they're normally holding a door open or something. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but they're, they're useful. You wouldn't you wouldn't particularly use it for anything apart from testing. But it, if you're developing for for a client that's using this setup, then of course you want to check it. The same as you would if you're developing a, a mobile app or you want to see something on, on an actual mobile device, you would want to check it on the physical device. Yeah. Yeah, well, what, what I've found and what's actually um, been difficult working remotely is that it, we're used to having a device locker at the office and you can just go over, grab like a Samsung Galaxy, whatever, test your, your website or your app on that. Um, or, and then if you need to do it on an iPhone, there's one there. If you need to do it on an old device, it's there too. There's a hundred devices in that closet and working from home. And now all our testers are working from home too. They don't have access to that. They could, of course, have taken some home, but then you don't have everything. It just doesn't work. And, and I think that the only solution to that is to use one of these online services. So this is not a plug by any means, but uh, I've been using BrowserStack. Um, and they have kind of all the devices, you know, um, and it's actual, it's not a virtual machine, I think, although maybe the um, the Windows ones are, but the devices themselves are actual physical devices located in wherever they are. And you just kind of remotely connect to it and use it. Um, it's it's really good and it's a little bit slow, but no slower than the actual machine uh, that you have sitting around in the house might be, um, especially when you're accessing dev tools and stuff. It mostly works. It's a tiny bit frustrating, but that's just how it is. Um, but it's opened up a world of possibilities. It means, okay, well, I don't have to worry. I can test this not just on uh, Windows 7, but also Windows 10. And I can test this not just on uh, this iOS version, but also an old iOS version if I want to. And I don't have to do a lot of provisioning and hours of setting up environments and gigabytes of space taken up on my own machine. Yeah. And for a company to to actually test these on physical devices in the, in the future, if everybody's working remotely, then the costs of that become so prohibitive that you're going to need a service like this. I mean, I guess it's kind of um, like Litmus, for instance, mm -hmm. when you're developing emails. Um, yeah. They get, you can test so many, so many configurations um, and they're actual machines, not actual devices. So it's yeah, and the same thing. And, and then there's another layer on top of that, which is once you get into sort of your CI pipelines and, and build processes, um, you can, with things like Applet Tools, I guess, or, or I'm sure there's some other services, uh, actually outsource the snapshot testing. So you don't have to manually yourself go to look at how this old part of the website that you're not currently working on 
responds to your current branch's changes. You just push to the server, the server runs its pipeline, and as part of that, it opens up that service, which loads the remote environment, opens the page, takes the snapshot and says, hey, did you break anything? Uh, and you get a report at the end of it. I mean, that is also insanely useful because especially when you're building like enterprise level stuff, there are hundreds of components and hundreds of, or, you know, lots of variations, thousands of variations, if you want, of how they fit together. That's something that manual testing is just not going to give you. Your smoke tests uh, that the testers do are only ever going to cover a small portion of what actually is there. So maybe better to offset, uh, offset that to the computer. Yeah, definitely. Any kind of automation. Um, it's If you can get alerts from that, then cutting out human error or the need for humans to actually check huge amounts of an application. It's just going to make things so much quicker. Yeah. Um, have you had a chance to use that on any of your own projects? Not at all. Uh, the not automated stuff like that. The as I mentioned with uh, Litmus, we used that when we were doing uh, an Adobe campaign project. So we were putting together templates that would be used on multiple devices. Um, desktops, mobiles, um, and the intricacies of designing and, and developing for, for email are just the, the possible, well, it's just endless, really. The, how everything reacts is just too much for, for you to test all of the devices on actual devices. So a, a, a service like Litmus, is just invaluable um, to actually get like a snapshot of what these things look like um, and then quickly make adjustments and retest these things. It's just uh, the power of that is immense. So yeah. I've never, I've never actually like put anything into the build pipeline that would actually alert me, Hey, this is broken. I did one time um, build some testing with Selenium so mm -hmm. that it was actually taking um, well, it was completing orders on, I think, 15 different e-commerce sites. So, But it was just testing that the page could be loaded, that a product could be put into the basket, that the basket, uh, the user could then actually go to the checkout, complete the, the process, and the order could be shipped. Um, yeah. That was really useful because every time you did a deployment and you could actually run these tests, and in like a minute or two, it would tell you, yeah, you've not broken anything. People can still transact with your site, which was pretty cool. I, I think so. I, I think automation in general is is a really fascinating thing to get into lately because it gives you kind of superpowers. <laughs> um, and we've relegated that to the testers for a while, but not all testers are, are QA are, are um really great at coding these things and tools like um cypress um have made it easier but it's still a learning curve and, and we can support them in that and like on my project um we're putting together um well we have an end-to-end -end test suite in place but we're slowly adding to it over time that, that's that's the goal is to eventually have most of the things we that users do on the site covered by end-to-end -end tests so that the smoke tests are just that much more thorough but but Thinking about this and, and moving away from virtual machines, even it occurs to me that, you know, 
the setting up of this automation, this kind of remote controlling some sort of device, that's really at the core of what we do on a daily basis anyway, right? Uh, at least with JavaScript and even even with presentational layers, we're relying on the browser to execute this thing that we wrote ages ago in a consistent manner when when requested, right? So we're programming some remote device, even though it's a browser. It's funny, we get really disconnected from the magic of that, I think. Um, but that is the core of what we do, and it's really exciting. Yeah, I wouldn't disagree. I mean, that's one of the great parts of the job, right? Like you're actually, um, you're creating something which is going to work on a device. Most of the time, our primary device is the, the laptop and, the, and the, um, the tool that's actually going to be used to display that is probably a browser like Chrome. So then we, then we start talking about um, like, oh, it needs to work on these other devices. But as you say, we've already built it so it works on uh, a device. Sorry, I can hear my Sorry. baby crying Don't. in the background. Don't worry. I did, war I did warn you that this could happen. That's right. Um, yeah, I, 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 I guess that's just the idea. Is um, you we we are kind of at the we're the most on display, right? And I I don't want to deprecate what backenders do, but you know the idea is if their program fails, you get a server error, right? And it's kind of hidden from sight. If our stuff fails you get this massive like, oh, the page like did not load at all or this thing completely does not work or, you know, any a number of other very embarrassing <laughs> frontward facing things. It's um, it has the potential to be intimidating, which is maybe why the front end world is so full of all these new tools and new approaches and like um, frameworks and, and things to kind of give us a better safety net. Maybe. Not sure. Yeah, the, I couldn't disagree with that. Actually, the back-end guy who works on my project at the moment, in the nicest way, tells everybody that every single uh, defect is front-end because, <laughs> <laughs> because it's even if it's his mistake, it's going to manifest itself in the front-end, so therefore it must be a front-end mistake. Um, sure. <laughs> thankfully, he's a super nice guy, um, so I can let him get away with that. But yeah, that is kind of intimidating. Like this, we do get we do get defects from clients, um, and they do automatically think that it's a front end defect. Go through the list, and they're like um, back end, back end, back end. So, um, hmm. yeah. Now, I think that the like going back to the automation thing and the and the tools that we have available. With that in mind maybe that is a big barrier for testers to actually take up that they could automate things. I see two problems here. One, a tester writing tests would think is like turkeys voting for Christmas in many ways. Um, like, are they really going to take an interest in automating their own job? Um, I think they should because they can get like, extra value from that. But if those tests themselves fail and then they're responsible for that, is it not just easier for them to run their normal tests and see things with their own eyes and not have the extra responsibility for the scripts when they probably didn't come into testing to be coders? Right? Yeah. Would, I, do you I, think that they would do you think it would be a barrier? 
So I haven't on our project, at least with the, the we have one tester um, that has been uh, helping with this feature, but we talked about it with a couple of other ones from uh, other projects as well. I got no pushback on this. They were all totally comfortable with it. They saw that it made sense. Again, it's that idea of they're fully aware that they can only test so many things in a given sprint. And especially when you start making big changes, like we often do because we're on a project where we're allowed to refactor and, and try new things. Um, yeah, it becomes really hard for them to keep up with everything that really ought to be tested. So for them, it is an opportunity to have a better say in what matters and, and make sure everything is tested, which I think is at the core of you take that job on because you really want to be thorough. Um, so I haven't gotten pushback on that. I mean, the, the other regard, um, yeah, I, I, I don't know. I, I think that the, um, they're not going to automate themselves out of a job. The tools that they're using here are, it doesn't mean that they're necessarily responsible for the tests failing, right? Uh, they, they could be, but then it's got to be a collaborative effort. I guess that's what I'm trying to get to is that the, um, especially if they're not coders themselves or don't want to be, they will help define what the tests should be and you can help code them. If they want to code them, great. You'll review their pull requests, right? But otherwise it's still the job of the engineers. Uh, maybe that's the front end. Maybe that's the back end. Who knows? Um, but the person who's doing the coding, they're the ones that are responsible, not necessarily the, the QA. I don't know. Yeah, I, I, I think that it would be better if they actually just like had a go and actually developed the first few with the with the developer, with a, with a front end mm -hmm. or a back ender, and then um, develop their skills from there. Like, I don't think they should be afraid of that. Like, the, they're actually improving the situation for the project, so why not do that? It would be it would make sense to me. Yeah, and, and I think it would also free them up to focus on different things that we might not be able to test because we're we're so surface level in what we're doing. Uh, does this work or not? And this maybe brings us into uh, another topic for, for this episode, which is um, in terms of users that are remote to you. So uh, examples of that might be different countries, different cultures, um, and developing sites that are going to work for them. Um, but, but maybe a little closer before we go to that is, is, uh, users that have spotty connections or are using, you know, um, assistive devices of some sort and developing for them. I mean, all this stuff falls under the umbrella of what the front end is, and we're already kind of, um, doing our best just to make it work for the perfect scenarios. Um, but oftentimes, you know, we, we either put aside or have a really tough time doing it for these other scenarios. What, what have you encountered in that regard on your project? And, and the gamut is open here. Uh, uh, accessibility, um, performance, anything you, you, you think is a fair game to talk about here? I think that in, in, in this current project, I... I don't really have worries about um, the tech stack that the, the end users you using. Um, they're, they're, they're all going to have high-end devices, high-end um, laptops and, and home computers. So I don't think that that is such a big consideration. Well, 
I mean, even saying that, I think that in terms of things like accessibility, um, we always strive to to actually make things work as they as they should. I, it still sticks with me. I went to a conference one time and saw somebody try to use a device. Um, I think it was the early stages of the iPhone. They said they actually tried to use a site using an iPhone, but they they couldn't actually see. So they needed the accessibility to be really good, um, and it really wasn't. And that stuck with me. Like it was not usable at all. And so that is something that's always in focus. Um, I've never really experienced having to develop something which is going to work in, say, like uh, an area that has um, 2G. So you could have a you could have a site that's um, intended for worldwide use, um, but you instinctively develop for the, the devices that you have, and we all have like high-end devices, so you just assume at the beginning, oh, this is going to work fine. This this parallax video, this is going to work everywhere. Um, when obviously, if you're over a two G connection, it really isn't. And um, which actually makes me think. Um, recently, I did develop a component which. I said, this is just not going to work, um, particularly for Internet Explorer. It just doesn't cope well with it. I've looked at it on an actual device. I've looked at it on virtual machine. It just doesn't work well. It works nicely in Chrome and Firefox and things like that. Um, but we should make allowances and we should just strip this out. Um, well, perhaps not strip it out, but just show it on the devices that are actually capable. Um, so it is... Yes. Even without realizing, it is something that we do on a daily basis. We're trying to advise clients for that. Yeah, I mean, uh, what what you're sort of getting at there is this concept of progressive enhancement, right? Exactly. This, uh, and I think that is really important. I remember um, one of the first conferences I went to uh, after I was sort of understood that what I was doing with my life and career was front-end development. Uh, there was a great talk by Jeremy Keith who was talking about resilience in general um, to many different things. But one of the, the things he said was, go back to the beginning of the web. HTML was built to be resilient. Hey, you didn't close off a div tag. Yeah, the page might look weird, but it's still going to load. Um, you incorrectly added an attribute. That's fine. It'll get ignored. Uh, the idea was it still works no matter what you throw at it. We come to JavaScript and like the first time it encounters an error, the whole rest of the JavaScript is done, right? It's not resilient. Um, that, that concept is, is, was really important to kind of get into my head early on. And that feeds into progressive enhancement. It says, okay, look, you don't know what the user's environment is like. So start from the basics. What is the most important thing you need to get across on this page? Probably the title and the text of the article, if you're doing an article, right? Don't do anything to obscure or obfuscate those things. Those have to be the first thing that show up in the network requests. And those have to be the thing that is like, you know, you get the first thing there first. Later, you can add crazy fonts. You can add CSS that moves and chops it up and, you know, adds a bunch of images, whatever you need to do. But 
build it in blocks, build it in stages, because you will then be able to communicate your message or whatever you're trying to get across with the thing you're building to the maximum amount of people. Um, it's yeah. a hard mindset to get into. It is because we are so used to working and seeing everything on high end devices. It's important that you always just take a step back and say, how would this work? Um, on a slower connection, how would this work if somebody is using like not the latest iPhone? Like, how is this going to work? Um, yeah. But it's easy to slip away from that. It's easy to part of like development process for me is that I would I would try and develop something that works um, in Chrome on my MacBook, um, and then I would be happy. And then the next step would be to go back to that and like take a look at it on other browsers, on Internet Explorer, and then develop so that it actually works there. And then um, try and make it as efficient as I can. So within that, there are steps which I like to go through just to make sure that it's going to it's going to work um, everywhere. But even within that, like you're still going to forget something. Um, and I think that the less you the less you forget in that second step, um, it's fine to make it work on Internet Explorer, but you've got to make sure that it works on every other uh, environment, and not just not just the environment, the connection speed, and things like that. So, um, yeah. God, like everything so, in front end is a minefield. There's so many sure. possibilities. There's so many things. What what I do like is that because the community is so large, everyone is using this, that there are tools that are really starting to grow and help. Um, in DevTools, you've got your connection uh, network tab, or no, uh, I forget the name of the tab, but there's a tab where you can control the network speed. Uh-huh. Um, that is super useful and allows you to sort of toggle to offline as well. So you could load the page, turn it to offline, click and see what happens. Like And Sometimes your site should be able to load. At least you should have an error message that says, hey, try that again when you're offline, you know, if you're building an app. These kind of things are important. But the other thing that I like about the tooling is maybe the opposite side of the the thing, which is service workers now have been created to help with things like this. So again, going back to Jeremy Keith, part of his talk was to say, hey, I don't know if the user is always going to have uh, a network connection. So the first time they load this particular site, uh, which was his like ebook version of the the talk and, and concepts he gave, um, I because it's so lightweight, I use a service worker to cache all of the pages in the site. Which means if they come back later and they're on a slow or a no connection thing, they don't make another network request. They just go to the page. Um, really clean, really efficient, and the tool was there to support him with that, which was, uh, I think, really amazing. And it's great to be part of this world where people are pushing for good solutions. Yeah, it really is. And I mean, like, anytime you get somebody who's a champion of of, of things like uh, accessibility um, and they really push the boundaries, like, you see a talk like that? As I said, I still remember watching somebody use a device um the impact that had that had on me um to actually make sure come on you've got to get accessibility right um it's not just because the government of a country says that you should do it real users going to require this and as you said the tools that are available in in chrome for instance in dev tools there's so many things that you can test 
then why not make use of it? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And and like what you said there, I, I like that as maybe a final point for this section is um, one of the things that makes us good at our job as front-enders is our capability of, of empathizing um, with the, the end users, right? Um, it's certainly UX people, that's like their job, um, but we have overlap with them. And I, I think it's such a key skill. And it means that when you're doing things like performance or accessibility, on your site, you're doing it because you care about the end user, and that makes all the difference. Okay, so um, we've reached that point where we should go into our listener questions. Uh, the first one I have here is, how do you deal with side projects and coding as a hobby when you're working remotely? How do you make a separation between those two types of work? That's a very good question, because when comes the point that you actually switch off from work, um, the temptation at home, particularly if you don't have people saying, let's go and do this or let's go and do that, is that you could end up working long into the night um, for, for work. I think that you need, as we discussed earlier on, you need the discipline. You need to actually set, like, this is the time that I finished. You alluded to it earlier on. At five o'clock, you finish and you're not available after that. I think that you really need you really need those boundaries. I think the beauty of working from home is that you kind of get to decide when those boundaries are, when those time slots come to an end. So in in many cases, a company would have like core hours that you should be available. And if you are available during those, great. Um, if you need to make up hours at a later time, then there's no problem with that. But I think that I would advise anybody, just create a schedule just and stick to it because you don't want to find that you're actually working like 12, 13 hours when you're contracted for eight. Eventually, that's not going to do your company any good. It's not going to do you any good. And if you really enjoy coding so much that you want to do the extra hours, then put that into your side project. How have you dealt with it? Yeah, I have uh, a lot of uh, <clears throat> side projects <clears throat> that get started and, you know, kind of go nowhere, depending. It all depends. Um, I, I, I don't go so far as to have a schedule per se, but you have to have a clean separation. So I, I don't work on my side projects while I'm at work hours, even if I could sort of borrow from one pool to put to another. I just, it it's not good for my brain to switch context like that. I have enough side projects already at work, <laughs> uh, which is to say like internal projects and things that I'm, I'm doing to make the company better. I, I can't do that with my other like, you know, uh, really real side projects. Um, so yeah, other than that, my, my thing has been to just be kind of easygoing with those side projects. So I have time when I wake up in the morning to brush up on articles, to, you know, um, pursue my own interests until a certain start time as well. That's a little bit fuzzy. I know I don't have to start until nine o'clock. 
So I have, you know, from when I wake up until then to sort of do as I wish. And that can be exercising, which I don't not do often enough, but that can also be, you know, um, reading a book that I needed to get off of my list that is ever growing. Uh, or it can be working on the, one of these side projects. It all just depends what is most appropriate for that day. Evenings, I try and stay away from coding because you need a change of pace. You can't just do that all the time. Um, weekends as well. It, it's better to go out and do hikes and spend time with your family. And if there's a few hours free when the others are busy, great, you know, work on the side project then too. But it shouldn't be your whole focus. You need to have a, a life work balance. Yeah, definitely. Now, I have a question here, um, which is, how do you deal with teams working in different time zones? Have you any experience of this? Uh, yeah, that, that's a that's a good question. Um, at NetCentric, we're, uh, we've been globally distributed before. Uh, we, we, we are currently, but we, we've for many years been doing this. We had at one point offices in uh, South America, um, in Medellin, and now we have an office in uh, India, in Pune. Um, that dealing with the different time zones, even, even like between where we are in, in Spain, we have to deal with the UK is a little bit off and we have to deal with, um, Romania is a, a different hour, uh, that than the German and, and Spanish offices, right? Y y you have to be more flexible. Um, for me, it is understanding that unless, well, anyone you're interacting with online, you can't expect immediate response. Right. Unless you've already begun the conversation with them and then, yeah, you know, it depends. But usually it's not good enough to say like, hey, how are you? Because they might not, you have to understand they might not answer you for a few hours. And the other part that was really important with your team in specific was they would be starting work maybe five hours before you um, in the mornings. And it was really important that when you left work for the day, you set aside half an hour to get ready what you needed them to do that day before. So I would on like a Wednesday at the end of the evening say like, okay, I'll send them Slack messages. They're not online now. They already went home hours ago, but I'll say tomorrow I'd like you to focus on this task. Here's the ticket for it. If you have questions, please ask this other person on in your time zone that I've um, talked with more recently about it, whatever the case would be, or send me a Slack message as soon as you get started and have these questions, um, hoping that they wouldn't waste four hours with a question that I wasn't available to answer. It doesn't always work, but that was the the best strategy I found for for handling that. Um, yeah, what about totally you? Makes sense. I don't really have any experience with this. I do with like working with people across Europe, but nothing um, in like major differences. I think even, even across Europe, it's not even just time zones. It's just appreciating the different cultures. Um, it's appreciating when people are going to go on lunch, for instance. Yeah. Now, like you work with somebody, uh, in, in Germany or Switzerland, they're going to break for lunch, like half past 11. They're going to come back about half past 12 maybe um maybe the people in uh in the uk or um yeah in the uk they're gonna are gonna just be going for lunch then like typically people in spain would go for lunch like half past one two o'clock you end up there's a huge chunk of time there where 
just through cultural differences, people are just not going to be available for questions. Um, like communication grinds to a halt. So you just have to be aware of that, especially as the lead. You've, you've got to actually make allowances for that and, and see these things coming. Um, but yeah. in general, I don't really have more experience of like, I never worked with people who were in the, um, the Medellin office. Um, I know that we had projects where people were working in the States, but part of the team was working in Europe. Um, but I wasn't actually involved in that. Um, but I think that your approach sounds, sounds perfect. Yeah, I mean, it's all you can do. And it, and it's funny because India is the opposite direction than Medellin. With Medellin, it was it had to be an opposite approach. Um, they had to get their questions ready at the end of the day so that when we got there in the morning, we can answer them, right? It it, it depends which direction you're going. Um, but yeah, it, it's it's even what you say is really important. Even in the Barcelona office, I start, you know, I'm available from seven uh, in the morning onwards, but I'm done after five. Whereas one of the guys on my team really doesn't get started until like 10 and is available until seven in the evening. So even though we're in the same time zone, there's that cultural overlap and lunch breaks, as you say. And the, 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 the most, the best you can do, I think, is to be clear on when you're going to be meeting each other. So have daily standups and things where you are definitely getting yourselves onto the same page. And then after that, be comfortable being a little bit asynchronous. It's totally acceptable. So, right. It looks like uh, that's all the time we have for today, folks. We want to keep it under the one hour mark. Uh, thank you so much for listening. If you have questions or topics that you'd like covered in our next episode, send a tweet to us at Heroes Frontend, and we will add it to our list. Um, if you enjoyed the show, you should like, heart, star us in your podcatcher of choice. Reviews and ratings are how those fancy algorithms help people find our content. And the power to help is within you. So until next time, heroes, remember, with great front-end power comes great responsibility. See you next time.